All right. Good morning. That was fun. We had a little knee slapper going on there a little while ago, didn't we? Yeah, that was fun. Jay, good job with that set. That was, uh, that was great. I like the scaled down version there. It was fun. All right. Well, we are, uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here um, at Parkside, and uh, we are working our way through the book of Hebrews, and we just kind of take as a practice as a church. Uh, it's called, we call it expository preaching. It's, uh, we just kind of go verse by verse, word by word, line by line uh, through the scriptures and let God set the agenda and whatever's next is what we talk about. And so today is a very shortened passage because there's a lot to talk about in there. Um, I just see my, my new married couple out there. Hey guys, good to see you. <laughs> um, and so uh, anyway, so it's, uh, we're working through the book of Hebrews here. Chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, uh, we're going to finish up our section we talked about last week on restlessness, um, and we're going to continue that topic here today as well. So let me pray for us. God, thank you for our time. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you that it is living, it is active, and it's sharp. And, um, and God, it's something we are grateful for. Um, and Lord, I pray that as we, as we work through this passage today, um, as God, it may hit home uh, for some of us, Lord, that you would... Um, do your work in and through us, uh, make us willing, make us pliable and teachable, make us open our hearts and our minds to what you would have to say to us from your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you remember, if you've been here through our series, uh, Hebrews, we are talking about how much the book is really communicating how Jesus is greater. Um, another way to put that is Jesus is better, uh, more valuable, more precious than anything or anyone in the entire world. Uh, the author is writing, the author of Hebrews is writing to a small church, okay, they're a small church smack dab in the middle of ancient Rome, uh, which was, by the way, not Christian during that time 2,000 years ago at all, and, uh, and so they were right in the middle of this, this, uh, this city. Uh, as a result of being Christians, uh, they were not allowed on the list of sanctioned religions at the time, and they were uh, persecuted as a result of that. Uh, they were suffering from external troubles as well as internal troubles, uh, the external trials, as we read throughout the book, we, we learn of some of these, uh, included being abandoned by their family and friends because of their faith, uh, persecution by the government, uh, leading to loss of their homes and jobs. They were, they were taking their homes from them. They were taking their jobs from them, all because of their faith in Jesus. Uh, this all led to a lot of internal conflict uh, among the believers, right? They were wondering, and you can imagine how this would be the case. I've come to faith in Jesus. I, I love him. This is great and wonderful. But man, my life just got a lot harder as a result. Is he worth it? Is he worth following? Is he worth committing my life to? Because what I'm getting as a result is not fun, okay? And that's what the writer is trying to communicate. No, he is worth it. He is worth it. And, uh, and for those who had come all the way to Christ, the warning he writes to this letter is you don't want to return back to religion. You don't want to go back to Judaism to go back to what they came from because in Judaism was not just another religion, it was, a, it was a safe haven, okay? It was a sanctioned religion in Rome, it was safe, they could get their jobs back, get their families back, get their friends back, right, get their homes back if they just went back to Judaism, right? They came out of that faith and came to Christ and here they are as a result of that. And so this letter is written to encourage them to stay the course, to endure, to press on because Jesus is worth all they were facing, and for those in the church as well who hadn't come all the way to Jesus, there were many of them in this church. They were kind of fence sitters. They were wondering, uh, am I going to come to faith in Christ or am I not? Is he worth it or not? He's writing to say the same to them as well. And the writer has done this by telling them how valuable Jesus is, how much better he is than going back to religion and to Judaism. 
He has said that so far that Jesus is greater and better than any of the angels, uh, greater than any religion, greater than any human being, even greater and better than the suffering that they are currently experiencing. Back in chapter 3 and here in chapter 4, the writer has begun, and he'll continue to do this, to kind of pick apart uh, Judaism, all right, and pick apart the religion that they were into, and to show them and telling them that rest for their soul, rest for their soul that they greatly desired will only be found in Jesus alone. We saw last week that religion and our, our kind of past lives apart from Christ uh, are really vain attempts, are really vain attempts at self-justification. We talked about that a lot last week. Uh, that's the idea of being declared right, okay, approved by others, right? It's just that everything we did in the world was an attempt to be justified, attempt to be declared okay by those around us and other people, um, and resulted in a restless people. As Christians, we can fall into this kind of restlessness. Uh, Martin Luther said, uh, said, religion is the deep default of the human heart, all right? It's, uh, it's like our hearts go back to factory reset, right? You ever fa- you reset your phone, right? You go back to factory reset, it's like our hearts go back. Every day we wake up, we go back again to this mode of self-justification. What do I need to do to be loved and accepted and approved by others or even by God himself? What, what steps do I need to take? What hoops do I have to jump through? And we got to go back again to the gospel to remember again, like, okay, I am, I am justified by faith in Christ apart from works, right? And i got to go back. I am loved by God. And so go back to that truth so that I can be, do the works and do the things that God's called me to do out of a heart of gratitude and love and out of grace as opposed to doing it out of guilt. And so we fall into this restlessness when we fail to believe the gospel, when we fail to believe we're justified by faith uh, in the grace of God offered us at the cross. Uh, we, we fall into restlessness when we fail to believe that when Jesus, when he says, it is finished, it is done, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Um, all, the, all this results uh, in practical, when we do this, it results practically in denying justification by faith. We theoretically believe that, we theologically believe that, but practically we deny that because we're operating as if we're not justified by faith. We've got we to gotta be justified by works. We've got to do our good deeds. We've got to go to church. We've got to give our money. We've got to serve. We've got to do these things, and then I'll be okay with God, or he'll be okay with me. And we can do that in the world, and we can do that in the church as well. Uh, one early church father in around 400 or so said he called this a, bl- a blasphemous anxiety to do God's work for him. I think it's interesting. A blasphemous anxiety to do God's work for him, right? We, we, we feel like God needs us. We got to do these things for him in order for him to be pleased, him to be happy with us, and him to love us. And so we need to hear this truth. We need to hear that rest is found in justification by faith. It's found in Jesus alone because though we might not be facing the pressures of persecution that this church is facing and we're reading about, we are facing the pressure of a culture we live in, a culture that, that is a culture of urgency, a culture that is all about, we talked about this last week, that it's all about what you do, right? That's what qualifies you. Is, it is all about what you do. It's a utilitarian culture. It'll press us into its mold of self-justification if we're not careful. And so we need to be a people who refuse to conform to the deadly and damning patterns of our world and, uh, and this is how one of the many ways will be light to our culture, right? Ones who, a restful people who are at home with Jesus and resting in him while the rest of the world seems to be just spinning out of control. We're, we're content. We are okay. We're at home with Christ. And that transforms how we see people. That transforms how we live. That transforms how we work, right? It transforms everything. And that's, that's the light that we have. And so the author wants, to, wants us to find rest in the gospel, rest in Jesus, trust in him, place our, our burdens on the one who loves us unconditionally, and, uh, and so he invites us to rest. 
And he talks about the rest is still open, right? We talked about that last week. It's still available. It's still there. He's offering rest today, but we must strive for it. We must work hard because the pressures of our culture are going to mold us into its own. The temptations of Satan is just to to do stuff and and totally forget Jesus, right? And so we had to go back again to why are we here and why are we saved and why are we Christians and what's the point? This is why verse 11 here says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest, the one end of the gospel, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And so what the author is going to do today is going to lay down more motivation for us, right? He's going to give us reasons why we should trust God and why we should trust his word and the gospel and find rest in him. Why should we do that? He's going to tell us why we need to, as the old hymn goes, lay our deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet and stand in him and him alone, wondrously complete. Um, He's going to tell us to take the gospel and do what Martin Luther called it. He said, Luther put it this way, most necessary is it that we know the gospel well, we teach it to others, and we beat it into their heads continually. Like we just need to constantly hear it over and over and over again. And so the author is saying, church, come find rest in Jesus. And he anticipates the people going, why? Why should I do that? And he says, because you've come to Jesus, and when you come to him, you find a God, and you find his word that is alive that is active, that awakens and attends to your soul. And that's what we'll look at today, right? The world and religion can't offer these things, but God can. And so let's look at this. Let's look at God's word and we look at him and we look at number one, he's alive. This is motivation number one. Verse 12 says, for the word of God is living. Now you may notice I said he is alive and yet I just read it says the word of God is living, right? The text says the word is living. Chris, you said he is living like did you, did you misspeak there? I didn't misspeak at all. You'll notice in verse 12, the references are to word of God, right? Then look at verse 13. What's the reference to? God himself. The writer doesn't even transition. He doesn't even say, okay, now I'm going to talk about God. He talks about God's word, and he talks about God in exactly the same fashion. You say, why was that? Because he didn't need to explain these things. They they were interchangeable. God and his word are both alive. Um, God and his word were inseparable. Matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews is obsessed with the fact that God and his word is living. Listen to these, just a couple verses. Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the who? You could say it. Uh, Let me try that again. All right, I know. We can do better than that, can't we? Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the Okay, chapter 9, verse 14. How much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the? Hebrews 10, 31. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the? Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the? Pretty, pretty popular, isn't it, right? It's a redundant thing that the writer keeps talking about. God is a living God. And what, is he, what do we mean we're talking about God's word is living, God is living? Like, why, why is that important? When the Bible speaks here that God's word is alive, the word is in the original language, which would be Greek at the time, is the word for, for breath. It's interesting, right? The, literally God's breath. You know what that means? That means that every time you, you open the Bible... And you hear it spoken, you read it. It is literally God's breath coming off the pages. It's God breathing. You can sense and feel God's breath coming off the pages. That makes this more than black words on white paper, right? More than, a, than, than code on a digital screen if you're holding like a phone or something out there, right? I mean, it's more than that. It, it, I mean, I've read a lot of books in my life. You can go to my library back here and I got a ton of books. I've read a lot of books, but this is the only one that reads me, right? 
It's only one. I mean, it, it is different than any other book that is out there because it is alive. That's what the writer is telling us. It is alive. That's why Jesus said in John 6, 63, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. They are life. That means when Jesus, when you read Matthew eleven twenty eight, and Jesus talks about, he says, come to me and find rest for your soul, right? Those are not just words spoken 2,000 years ago by Jesus. You are literally hearing the spoken word of God now. Jesus is breathing life in, in, off the pages of Scripture. Jesus Christ is even now, at this very moment, speaking to you individually from the Word of God. That's the power of it, right? That's why later on in Hebrews, he's going to say something like this. He's going to say in Hebrews 13 that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He, he, just like he spoke 2,000 years ago off these pages, he speaks just the same now. You see, how does this all connect to the topic of rest? Like, what, what's the transition here? The point is you're not coming to find rest in some religion. You're not coming to find rest in some creed. You're not coming to find, find rest in a group. You're not coming to find rest in a teacher. You're coming to find rest in the living God who made you and created you. Rest is an intimate relationship with the living God, resting in his finished work and laying down our damnable good works that we so lean on to make us justified. Resting in his finished work. It's getting the gospel breathed on you through Jesus, through the scriptures. It brings rest to your soul. Why? Because you hear through the gospel, you hear, you know what? Okay, I'm, I'm not justified by the opinion of others. I'm not justified by my efforts and my works and my church attendance. I'm not justified by anything or anyone else. I am only justified by Jesus. And he says, I'm his. When you hear that, that transforms the soul. That transforms your perspective and everything in life. Think about the comparison to Judaism, which is what the author is making. Judaism, just like any religion, is cold, is death, lifeless religion and law. And the writer is saying, you don't want to go back to that, do you? You don't want to go back to that. That's like the wilderness generation. That's like them wandering around, wondering where they're going, wanting to go back to slavery. You don't want to go back to slavery. You don't want to go back to the bondage of those things. You want to find rest for your soul, then come to the living God in the pages of Scripture where the gospel story breathes life into you. But he's not just alive. Number two, look what else is true here. It's also God is active this is where the Word of God is living, and God himself is living and active. So God and his Word aren't just alive, they are active. What's that, what's that mean? It means they're doing something. The words are doing something. They are accomplishing a purpose. As a matter of fact, the word active is the, is, can be translated the word effective. God and his Word do what it promises to do. It turns people, right, from damnable good works to righteous good works. It turns people from religion to a relationship. It turns people from self-justification to justification by faith alone in Christ alone. It turns people from restlessness to rest. It's a truth that radically transforms and changes people. Th think, about for a moment, think about all the great speeches, okay, just in the history of our country for a moment, or even the history of the world for a second. Think about, you know, Churchill's The Finest Hour, right? Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, Kennedy's Inaugural Address, William's, William Wilberforce's Abolition Speech, Patrick Henry's, right, Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream. These are all great speeches that sparked revolutions and changed the trajectory of history in many different ways. We'd all see that those were effective in some form, but how much more effective and more active do you think are God's words through the Scriptures? They change people forever. 
They change societies and civilizations. They change trajectories of whole cultures, right? That's what the Word of God does. That's why Isaiah 55 10 to 11 says this, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth, God says, it shall not return to me empty. It will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing with which I sent it. This makes God's word powerful, right? Uh, I was reading... um, Ravi Zacharias, so if you've heard him or listened to him on the podcast or anything, he was telling the story. Uh, he's a Christian apologist, and that doesn't mean he apologizes for Christianity. It means he defends it, if you don't know what that word means. So he's a defender of Christianity, kind of argues for the existence and the reality of the Bible. He tells a story about a drive he had, he took with a missionary uh, in, in Lebanon. Not Lebanon, okay? In <laughs> Lebanon. That was the strangest thing when I got here. I'm like, why are you calling it Lebanon? It's Lebanon, but okay. To each his own. Indiana, we call it Lebanon. During that time, all right, and he was telling the story in Lebanon, uh, he was, it was occupied by the Syrian army, which was quite dangerous, right? And so he's driving around with this pastor in a truck. In the back of the truck are boxes. They're boxes of Bibles. They're driving around uh, the country, passing these out to people. They get to a checkpoint. Get to a checkpoint. A Syrian soldier puts a rifle in his face, in the pastor's face who's driving the truck, and he says, uh, he says what's in the van? Zechariah says he was horrified as the missionary replied, oh, Nothing but boxes of dynamite. <laughs> then handing, he, he opened up the Bible, you opened up the, the boxes, you know, handed the guy a Bible, and he said, hey, here's what I'm talking about. Read this, and it will break into your life like, uh, like with God's power like dynamite. <laughs> he handed it out to him. And Zacharias is telling the story. He's like, I just thought we were going to die. And the guy kind of took the Bible, and we're like, okay, you can pass. And like, let him go through, you know, let him, let him check out. It was a gutsy move. But God's word is powerful. That's what the missionary was getting to, right? The pastor was getting to. Like, look, I, this is powerful. It'll radically transform your life. If you listen to the gospel, it will change you. When people in history have taken God's word seriously, things have happened. It sparked the Reformation, right? Which is why we're even here today. We are a Protestant church. You say, what does that word mean? It's, pro, it's from the word protest, Martin Luther was, and his followers were protesting the Catholic Church, and we became the Protestant Church from the Catholic Church as a result of the Reformation. It was all because of God's Word. And then I love how Luther, <laughs> you may not think this is funny, I think it's funny. Luther put it this way. Here's how he, someone interviewed him and says, how did it happen? How did the Reformation take place? Here's what he said. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. He wrote commentaries. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Almsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. <laughs> it's like it just radically transformed everything. Like, I, just, I just let it go. It's what uh, Spurgeon talked about, a lion in the cage. Just, let, just open the cage and let the lion go, right? George Whitfield stood on a hill in 1739 and began to speak in his biography. He talked about went to, he would go to the coal mines. Back in the 1700s, it was, it was crazy to think that you would go outside of a church building and go out into the fields and go preach the gospel somewhere. That was unheard of at the time. Matter of fact, it was forbidden, but Whitfield did it anyway. You can read his biographies. He went out to these coal miners, okay? And he went out there, and he talked about He started preaching the gospel, and they all started coming out of the, out of the mountains to hear him, and he described it this way. He said, the first discovery of their being affected was the sight of the white gutters made by their tears, which fell plentifully down their black cheeks as they came out of the coal pits. They were just covered in coal, and you could just see the gutters forming on their faces as they were, they were responding to the gospel and to the word of God. 
Jonathan Edwards wrote about what he saw in the effectiveness of the Word of God during the Great Awakening here in America a few years after uh, Whitfield. He said, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. Our public assemblies were beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on the public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister. The assembly from time to time in tears while the word was preached. Some weeping with joy and distress. Others with joy and love. Still others concerned for the souls of their neighbors. You say, well, that's, that was then, Chris. You know, we're, we're, this is now. This is different now, right? You think, you think God, maybe you think God isn't active in your life. Though you read the scriptures and though you hear God's word, you, you feel maybe that God is inactive. But I assure you that in the midst of feeling the inactivity, he is still active. He's still active. He's still working in ways that you can't see him. Think about it. Could God be doing something in this maybe feeling a spot that you have? Could God be doing something that you never even thought of? Are you willing to be quiet for a day, quiet for a, a week, a month, a year, maybe even a decade, while God's Word actively works on you in ways that you don't even see or feel? That's the clinging to faith. I'm going to continue to dig into God's Word. I'm going to continue to read. I'm going to continue to listen to it. I'm going to continue to hear it preached. Even though I don't, I don't feel anything happening, you're going to continue to expose yourself to it because you believe by faith that God is active and working in that. Listen, we have the idea of the miraculous all wrong. In many ways. I mean, we think the Jesus' first miracle, right, turning water into wine was a, was a miracle. And it, and it was a miracle. But how much more of a miracle is the whole process that God takes a seed. I mean, this is mind-boggling. Takes a seed, turns it into a vine, grows grapes and it, and on that vine. And they're picked and they go through fermentation, turn it into a glass of wine. That, that is a miracle. A seed turns into to that? Like, that's, that's ridiculous. That's a miracle. But that's the process in any kind of growth of any fruit out there, that's the process that God uses on us. It's the same process. We want the miraculous, right? We want the quick kind of thing. We don't, we don't embrace the fact that it is miraculous that God takes us through a process to bear fruit into our lives. God's always active, always working, even if we don't see it, feel it, or notice it. Listen, when seeds go in the ground, they go through long stretches of darkness, right? Invisibility, silence. Before they even sprout from the ground, much less produce fruit. And, we were, and it's kind of silly, but we're like a bunch of grown adults. We throw pumpkin seeds on the ground, we cover with dirt, we stomp our feet, and then we complain. We want our pumpkins to carve now, right? We want them right now. Where are they at? Why aren't they out of there? Aren't they growing? What's going on? That, that's kind of how we approach God. Like, come on, why isn't there this radical transformation that took place right now? He is changing you in ways you don't even see, right? Things underneath the surface that is happening. And so the author is like, come and find rest in Jesus. And the church goes, why? And he says, because when you come to Jesus, you're coming to the living God who is active in your life, working in your life to lay down your self-justifying work and to rest in him. But look what else he does. Number three, he also awakens. He goes on to say that the word is living and active, and it says it's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit there in verse 12, of joints and marrow and discerning thoughts and tensions of the heart. So here we find God's word does a very particular work here in us. It awakens us. You say, what do you mean by that? It, it, it goes deep into the soul and it uncovers things that otherwise we would not know. It divides what can't be divided. It explores the depths of the soul that we can't reach. This is what he means by dividing soul 
soul and spirit and joints from, from marrow. This is, this is hyperbole, or as my kids call it, hyperbole, right? This is hyperbole here is what's going on. Um, the, soul is, the soul and spirit are inseparable, right? They're interchangeable. It's the same thing. The soul and spirit is a, is a description of the inner person. There's nothing to divide there. It is one. Right? It's simply saying that God's word can separate what even appears to be inseparable, right? At this point in history, joints and marrow even were inseparable, right? That's what he's communicated to them. That's impossible to break apart. That's why the author compares the word of God and God himself, not just to, notice it, not just to a sword, but a sharper than sharp sword. You notice that? It's a two-edged sword. It's sharp on both sides, which emphasizes its penetrating force. It means nothing remains untouched by Scripture, by the living God, for he addresses every aspect of a person's life. He goes all the way down to the bottom of the soul. You can't hide from him, and you can't hide anything from him, right? Remember we said last week that the enemy of rest, the enemy, is our vain attempts at self-justification. Many times we don't even realize we're seeking to justify ourselves or what we're doing, right? Have you ever tried to figure out why you do what you do? You ever try to get to the motives like, ah, I don't know why, am I doing this right? Am I doing it the wrong reason? Am I doing it for the right reason? You ever try to discern that? It's kind of hard sometimes, isn't it? You ever had a spouse or a friend point out a bad habit in your life and you just can't seem to figure out how to change it? It just, it just seems, seems insurmountable. I don't know how to, how to go a different direction. It's hard. But the Word of God can dig deep into the soul and awaken us to the realities and exposes our motives, right? That's what he says by the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It exposes our motives. It literally assesses our heart. That's what the word discerning means. So the Word of God penetrates to the deepest places in our souls. It assesses what's there. What is there? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it, is it self-justifying work you're doing in the church or in the world? Is it, is it gospel-based work you're doing? Is it motivated out of love for the one who loved you? Or is it motivated out of guilt to get loved? Like, what's going on down deep in the soul? The Word is able to, to bring that to the, to the top. And the result of this penetrating power of God's Word is that it's able to probe the inmost recesses of your soul and bring, uh, bring our motives to light. This is good old-fashioned. We call conviction, okay? Conviction. And it's a good thing, though it's not always a fun thing, right? Maybe you can vouch for the fact that conviction you felt, and you felt it before, and you're like, that was good. I didn't like it. <laughs> didn't enjoy it, but it was good. And I appreciate the process the Spirit took me through to convict me of sin and take me to this spot. And so this means that this is what he's doing. This is a good thing. It's painful, but we are not to harden our hearts. This is what the writer talks about here, right? Don't harden your hearts. Don't, don't, don't resist it. Let God's Spirit bring conviction. Let the gospel, let the word of God cut us in order to heal us. Without, there's no healing without cutting first, right? This means it's going to take some time. It's going to take some time for God to awaken all the realities deep in your soul, things that we have done, things that have been done to us, wounds, vices, all of those things. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing that God takes time with that. You understand this, right? It's a good thing. If God revealed everything there is down the depths of your soul and brought it all to the surface all at the same time, do you think you could bear it? You think you could shoulder all of that? It is grace, it's the grace of God that he just kind of just brings conviction in this area, works on that and brings conviction in this area. It's a process in which he brings us to, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing. Eugene Peterson put it this way. He says, do you suppose God wants to be with me in a way that does not involve changing my spouse or getting rid of my spouse or my kids, but in changing me and doing something in my life that maybe I could never experience without 
this pain and suffering. Friends, God's word, if you take it seriously, is powerful. It will cut you, but it will cut you so as to heal and change you. I've shared this story before, but it's like one of my favorite stories from Whitfield's biography, which I talked about earlier. There's a man named Thorpe. You guys remember this guy if you've heard the story before, but humor me anyway because I like the story. Uh, there was a guy named Thorpe. Whitfield would go around. He was a circuit preacher, okay? You know, he'd go out in the woods and go out into the lands, and he would preach, and thousands of people would gather around. Matter of fact, at one point, he, he could cross the oceans and preach over here, and at one point, even Ben Franklin, who was not a believer, actually respected Whitfield, and he talked about how he would, he would be 5,000 uh, people deep back. He could still hear him preaching. That's how loud he was. Um, and so he would go around, but he would, man, people would throw rotten tomatoes at him. They'd throw, like, animal feces at him. I mean, they would throw every, they hated him, right? And they'd climb up on trees and yell at him. And it was just a, it was a, quite a feat just to preach every time he would go out. He had a group of people that particularly hated him, and they actually branded themselves as the Hellfire Club. That's what they called themselves. They're like, we're going we're gonna to give him hell. This is what we're going to, we're call ourselves the Hellfire Club. And so they would go around and really make, make fun of him and really try to disturb him. And after he would preach, they'd go to the local pub and they would drink and they would get up. And they, at that time, they printed Whitfield sermons. And so Thorpe was the guy, the leader of the gang kind of thing. He stood up, you know, and it was easy to mock Whitfield because he was, and you can read this in his biography, he was severely cross-eyed. And so he would get up there and he would, he would stumble around and he'd hold the sermon up there and he'd cross his eyes and he would read the sermon mocking Whitfield, right? He did this quite often. And one of these times he was doing this, he was, he was mocking Whitfield, reading the sermon, and about halfway through reading it mockingly, the word of God pierced his heart. And as he's sitting there mocking, he starts crying, and he puts the sermon down and goes and sits down. And all of his friends are like, what just, what just happened? Like, what's going on? And, and he was, he was cut, he was convicted, and God's, God's ex, uh, exposed the motives of his, heart, of his heart right there, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And I love how the biographer put it. He said, his aim was to taunt and ridicule, but he accidentally converted himself. <laughs> right? it, was the power, I mean, it was the power of God's word that converted him, but you get the idea. It penetrated his soul. Just even reading it in a mocking way transformed Thorpe. He actually joined Whitfield, ended up being preaching with him, actually, by the time uh, all this happened. This is why old Puritan Thomas Watson said, by reading other books, the heart may be warmed, but by reading this book, it's transformed. It's transformed. So the author is inviting us to come and find rest in Jesus because he's a living God, an active God, and a God who awakens the realities of our soul. But he doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't just bring conviction and bring the things to the surface. He wants to heal us as a result. And that's the last thing. He attends. Verse 13, no, no creature is hidden from his sight. All right, so it says, when I say, God, when I say, when I say attends to us, it means the idea he watches. He watches us carefully. The picture that the writer kind of gives here is that it's the idea of like we're in a hospital bed, and God's word is like the nurse and the doctor there watching over us carefully, checking our vitals, all with the goal of bringing healing. Yes, it may hurt, right? It may hurt. Uh, and, it's, and it's uncomfortable, right? If you've ever been in that situation before, I had kidney surgery uh, a couple years ago. Um, and, uh, and you know that ugly gown they give you that has no open, you know, it's open in the back, right? Very vulnerable, right? You walk out, you know, my, my son got head surgery and they put like Noah's, um, ark creatures all over. And I'm going, you know, that's when God like annihilated the world. That's not very comforting to like, why do you dress kids in that? I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense. Oh, it's so cute, you know, and it's not cute. It's not cute at all. Anyway, um, 
And so, you know, you're looking at that. I, I, I remember the gown, you're sitting there, and you're like, this is really uncomfortable, but you know, what, what's the point of that? Why do they do that? It's not to shame you, though it may feel that way, or to hurt you, but it's, it's, it's so that uh, they can heal you. They can monitor you. They have access to do surgery and anything they need to do in that way without hindrances. And so you go back and read this verse again. It says that we are, we are naked, open, exposed, and laid bare before who again? We're before the living God. And he sees everything about us. He knows our every thought and our every motive, but his goal in that knowledge is not to shame us with that truth, but to heal us with that truth. We actually find rest in knowing that God knows us. Why? Well, let me give you a little caveat here. If you don't know Jesus Christ, this is not restful at all. Right? God's eyes it's not a restful thing. You ever seen Lord of the Rings, the Eye of Sauron? That's kind of like the vision of God for you if you're apart from Christ, right? You are known, you are seen by your creator as a rejecter of the offer of grace and mercy and rest that he offers to you, and you've rejected that. That's not restful at all, okay? But if you've come all the way to Jesus, and this vision of God knowing you all the way to the bottom is a good thing, because it means God sees everything about you. He sees more of you than you see of yourself all the way down to the depths of your soul. And I promise you, there's not a cute, cuddly teddy bear at the center of your soul, though you may think there is, right? And yet God loves you. Everything that's there, everything's exposed, all the depth, all the sin and the depravity that's deep in our souls, God, has, God sees all of that, and yet God loves you. Think about that. He knows more, and you, you, you know the reality of yourself a little bit, right? You, you've experienced it. You've lashed out. You've been angry. You've said things you shouldn't have said. You, you've... you've gone over these murderous thoughts in your head of hatred of somebody. You've gone through these steps and things before, and you know, man, there's stuff in there that I don't don't even want to know. And God knows it, intimately knows all that stuff. And yet he loves you anyway, unconditionally loves you. And with his loving hand, he is going to, he's going to cut, and he's going to bring things to the surface, and you're not going to like it, right? It's going to bring conviction and things, it'll be hard, but it'll be for healing purposes, He already knows what's there. He already knows all about you. And he has promised to walk with you through all of the repentance and the faith and the healing. And he's big enough to hold all of that. This old movie back in the early 90s called Fisher King. It's set in New York City. And there's this uh, character named Perry. Robert Williams plays the character. And he gets a date with a gal named Lydia. And Lydia is sure, she's positive, that if anybody knows her, if anybody really knows her, they'll reject her. She's very insecure. And, they, and they, they go on a date, you know, they have dinner, and he walks her back to her apartment, he's at the bottom of the steps, and, and, uh, and she says to Perry, she goes, oh, I had a wonderful time, but I never want to see you again, goodbye. <laughs> she walks in, and, and, uh, and, and Perry goes, well, hold, hold on, what's going on? And she says, look, she says, I, you see, this is how it works. We'll exchange phone numbers, and you'll leave. And I'll go to work, and I'll feel so good for one day, and then you won't call. And then you won't call again, and then you'll never call, and ever so short, slowly I'll turn into a piece of dirt. I don't know why I'm putting myself through this tonight. It's very nice to meet you. Goodbye. You know, she shuts the door. And Perry you know, yells, oh, I got a confession to make. I got a confession. And she goes, you married? He goes, no. Divorced? No. You have a disease? No. Stop, he says. I have a confession. I love you. And not just from tonight. I've known you for a long time. He says, I, I know you come out, of, out from work at noon every day, and you fight your way out that door, and then you get pushed back in, and three seconds later, you, you, you come back out. 
I walk with you to lunch, and I know it's a good day if you stop and get that novel at the bookstore. I, I know what you order, and I know that you on Wednesdays you go to that dim sum parlor, and I know that you get a jawbreaker before you go back to work. This is obviously in the early 90s. <laughs> he says, and I know you hate your job, and you don't have many friends. I know sometimes you feel a little uncoordinated, and you don't feel as wonderful as everybody else does, and feeling as alone and as separate as you feel you are, I love you. And I think you're the greatest thing since Spice Racks. <laughs> and I'd be knocked out several times if I could just have that first kiss. And I won't. I won't be distant. I'll, I'll come back in the morning and I'll call you. I'll call you if you let me. And she kind of reaches out and she touches and she goes, are you real? <laughs> like, who are you? And she was transformed, right? Why? Because she was known. She was known. And someone who would know her and then stay with her even though he knows. Her heart was exposed. And yet she found rest. She found love in that. This shouldn't be shocking because when Adam and Eve were created, they were without clothes, right? They were vulnerable. They were, they were naked, and they were what? Not ashamed. They were not ashamed. Why? Because they were resting in God. They were confident in his love for, for them. They were satisfied with God's validation of them. But when they turned from God like they did, and they sinned, they, and tried to be their own saviors and their own lords, the self-justifying mode, they experienced the feeling of not being acceptable anymore, didn't they? They felt ashamed. And what did they do? They covered up. They hid, hid from God, and they covered up. And they sewed on fig leaves. And here's what God does in light of all of that. In light of all the sewing that we do, right, all the fig leaves we put on, here's what he does. He, the word here says he exposes us. And that sounds harsh, right? But it sounds harsh. And the original word is actually worse than that. Just so you know, the language here for the word to expose, and I'll give you the literal translation of the word. It's, it's kind of a shocking word. The word literally means to take by the throat. God's like, I'm going to take you by the throat. Now, now you, it's even more uncomfortable now, isn't it? You're like, that doesn't sound good at all. It was used to describe how a man would be led to execution by a knife placed underneath his chin back in the day. So that he would not bow his head in shame away from the gaze of the people, but he'd have to face up to it. They would hold the knife underneath and make him look at the people that he had offended and the reason why the people he had, he had committed crimes against. And he had to look at them, and they would lift, the, lift their head up, expose the neck, so they had to look at it. They had to feel the conviction. He had to keep looking at them and face the shame. Christian, Jesus, as it were, he picks up our heads, exposes our necks so that we have to look at him and face the truth. Face the reality, the sin, the wounds, the shame. But listen, this is where we find rest. Because we can turn it all over to him. We can, we can repent, we can be healed only as we see and are seen by Jesus in the gospel. If you don't run to the gospel, we will hang our heads in shame. We'll turn to that self-justifying mode where we become restless people just like the rest of our culture. In doing so, we sew the fig leaves on and create these massive walls between us and others and God himself. And those walls aren't really working, are they? God sees right through those walls. He always has, and he always will see you, no matter how many walls you try to build up, no matter how many fig leaves you try to sew on. Because he might be invisible to us, but we're not invisible to him. He's a living God. He's actively working in your life, who will cut you with conviction, and will expose you in that way. But in doing so, he does so so that you might, might find healing, so that, so that you might see him see you, Right? and find rest. The whole process hurts. And we think he couldn't cut any deeper, he cuts deeper. And we don't like it at first, but we know that that's where we find rest. We need to be laid bare and open before God and see and experience his grace and forgiveness and mercy. Hosea chapter 6, 
verses 1 through 3 says this, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, on the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn, he will come out as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. There's a song some years ago by uh, a group named Shane and Shane. It was called Hosea. And this is some of the lyrics of the song I thought was really good. It says this, Come, let us return, for he has torn us into pieces. He has injured us. Come, let us return to the Lord. He will heal us. He will bandage our wounds. In just a short time, he'll restore us. In just a short time, he'll restore his church so that we might live, so that we might live in his presence. Oh, that we might know the Lord. Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. Let us press hard into him. Then as surely as the coming of the dawn, he will respond. He will respond. Yes, it hurts to have the head lifted up. But when you lift the head up and the neck is exposed, you're looking at a Savior, right, who died for you and loves you and receives you and will heal you. That's why he wants you to look up. Stop looking down. Stop feeling, you know, all the shame and all the stuff you're looking at. Look up at him. He wants you to see him. He wants you to see the eyes of compassion and mercy and grace and love so that you can be healed, so that you can be made whole, so that he can turn you around and head you out in the right direction to make his name known. There's a time now to stop running from yourself and running from God. Because, guys, there's no other place to run to. Stop hanging your head in shame. Let the word of, sword of God's word that is at your, at your neck lift your head up to see Jesus with those eyes of compassion and love and mercy. There is rest available for your soul today. Jesus says, come to me, all you weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Not maybe, not possibly, I will, I will. And the invitation there is for you today to come to him and find rest for your soul. We take communion so we can remember him and so we can have time to reflect and respond. So as we have some quiet, if you're new with us, we have just some quiet time in here. We don't play any music. It's just kind of quiet for a few minutes, for about a minute. And take, a, take an opportunity to kind of you to talk to God, you to respond to him with whatever you're feeling. He already knows what's down in the soul. Be honest, be transparent. If you don't know him, if you don't know a relationship with God, if you don't understand what it looks like to be in a relationship with God, you've, if you look up and you see the eyes of Jesus and you don't see eyes of compassion and love and mercy, you see eyes that are coming with wrath, you need to respond in grace. He will receive you today. But the tables are there for those who are followers of Christ. There's bread, there's juice. We take in remembrance of him. His body and blood was shed and poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him. We give our offerings as well. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for your word. It is convicting. It is powerful. And we don't always like it. And yet, God, we know that it is what, is, is what we need. I pray for those today who are just tired of running. I pray for those today who are tired of looking down. That, God, they would have the strength by your grace to look up and see you. God, I think of Psalm 3. God, you're our glory. You are the lifter of our head. God, would you lift heads this morning? Lift heads to see you. And that, God, you would bring healing. And for others, God, that you would just bring that cut, bring that conviction. God, to help them see where they need to change, to see where they need to treat people better, where they need to love their spouse and love their kids, respond to those, obey those that are in authority over them, God. I pray that 
you would bring the conviction that you need to bring today to each and every one of us. Do your work, God, through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.